welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and my co-host, Matt Scott, is not with me today because I am in beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm going to be spending some time with a longtime friend and fellow traveler, Kurt Williams. Uh, he's often known as the cruiser whisperer, but more importantly, he is a very accomplished traveler and overlander and shares some of his thoughts on not only land cruisers, but traveling around the globe. And I'm also grateful for today's sponsor, which is Scout Campers. This is a camper model that I've been following for a few years now as they have come to market. They have some very thoughtful innovations, including a minimalist and very simple design overall, which that of course leads to it being the ultimate lightweight off-grid truck camper. Unlike traditional RVs, Scout Campers were built with simplicity and flexibility in mind, which has led to their minimalist modular design. Amenities can be taken out and enjoyed outside thanks to thoughtful options like the 270-degree Batwing awning, exterior slide-out tabletop, and the portable Dometic fridge and freezer. The options for camper customization are endless with the industry-first add-ons like the pop-up tent that's accessible from inside the camper. And it also has removable camper jacks. It has that real flame propane fireplace and more. These campers will last for generations because of their four season construction, which features an aluminum exoskeleton frame and no wood composite structural panels. To top it all off, Scout campers are eco-friendly, energy efficient, and come standard with lots of off-grid necessities like solar power, a portable power station, and filtered water storage. Scout now offers three models that fit a range of trucks from half ton to full-size long and short box vehicles. Explore the possibilities at scoutcampers.com. Kurt, thanks so much for being on the podcast, man. This is, re it's really great to see you. I'm here in Salt Lake and this is hometown for you, right? It is. This is home and thanks for having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. And we're in your your new facility. We are. And how long have you been in this building? Just over a year, about 18 months now. So just still growing in and still getting everything dialed in, but we're here and rolling and running. I mean, you, your whole story is fascinating, not only as a traveler, but as uh, an expert on land cruisers and then also the story of cruiser outfitters. And I mean, as long as I've been in the industry, you've been doing this as I can, as long as I can remember. When did you first acquire Cruiser Outfitters? I took ownership January 1st of 2002. Okay. Yeah. I'd worked there a couple years before, but yeah, I officially was my problem as of January 1st, 2002. <laughs> and, and how old were you when this all happened? I was 21. I thought, yeah. so. I thought you, I, young I, and I, dumb. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. The things that we get away with right at that age. Cause then we can just throw time and energy behind it and somehow make it work. Exactly. It was an existing business at the time. And so, but it was relatively small. you kind of bought it as a, a little bit of a working entity, right? You got it. It was, it started in about 92 here in Salt Lake. And really it was a full service land cruiser shop that did restorations, paint, but even tune-ups, engine swaps, but had zero internet presence. In fact, didn't even have a website. Of course, in that day, you know, early nineties, all the way into the late nineties, it wasn't as prevalent to sure. be on the line online, but definitely didn't even have an email address. So the previous owner, Daryl, still a, a dear friend, he kind of had no interest in taking it anywhere in that realm. And that's kind of the direction I needed to take it. I was still a full-time student at the time. So sure. needed to be a part-time business that I could run, you know, all hours of the day. So had to go online. 
And, and what is your educational background? Cause in, I mean, you and I have traveled around the world together and that's always been one of the things that's been most impressive to me about you is you're a very smart guy, but you're also a very well studied individual. So what, what was your background in education? Well, thank you for the kind words. I, uh, my, my background was mechanical engineering. So I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree from the University of Utah in, in 2006. Cruiser Outfitters was never meant to be a full gig for me. In fact, it was the get me through the end of school, <laughs> have some cruiser money, play with land cruisers, and then, you know, go get a real job, right? Quote unquote, get a real job in the real world. Talk to me about that. What was that point in time or that transition where you realized that this little lifestyle business that you had built to get you through college was now going to be your career? Was there some challenge around making that decision or did you just know that it was right? No, definitely some challenge. And I didn't even know it was right till the last minute. 2006, I'm getting ready to graduate, starting to do exit interviews, starting to do uh, career fair days there at the the university. They were having uh, companies from the industry come in. And I was interviewing, I was looking at, hey, where am I going to land after school? And it was actually an undergraduate professor of mine that I worked a lot with that he knew what I was doing and he'd been supportive and really interested in this little land cruiser business I had. And he said, no, you got to keep doing what you're doing. Like you didn't go to school to be an engineer. You you came to school to be a problem solver, Mm -hmm. use that. And you got to run this business. You can always, it doesn't work after a year or two, you can always come be an engineer but you can't, you know, you won't ever pick that back up if you've got this little business uh, churning away. One of the other things that I've I've noticed about you and your business, having been in the overland industry for as long as I have, I've actually never once heard someone say a negative word about you or your business. And that is very difficult to achieve, to have the, the customer rapport that, and it doesn't mean that you don't have problems, but I've never heard anybody complain about Cruiser Outfitters. What do you think are some of the things that has allowed you to accomplish that? What are the things about your business, or maybe even you as, a, as an individual or how you train your team that has allowed you for, for you to go essentially almost two decades without having any negative part of your reputation? That's a great question. And we don't always hit home runs. I mean, certainly we, we know we're always learning and we, we ex, you know, sometimes experience the hard way that we didn't make every transaction the way that we wanted to. And we do everything we can to make it right. I think the big part of it is that we're all Toyota guys. We're all automotive guys here. All my employees Pretty much everybody here understands what it's like to order something and get the wrong part or have it show up late. So we really just try to think of it like, hey, how do we want to be treated when we place an order? How do we want to be treated when we have service done on a vehicle? And just kind of holistically look at it and and uh, you know treat it treat others how we want to be treated as a consumer ourselves. So we've looked at that way. Another big part of it is being part of the community, being active yeah, in forums, being active in those Facebook groups. That's how you and I met. Sure, a couple decades ago now is through. Uh, kind of different forums through the exhibition portal forum back in the day. Yeah. And that's been being part of those community. You really get a vibe for what people are looking for product wise, but also you can be out in front of any of those issues before they pop up, say, Hey, let's get this solved before it was ever a problem. I remember this was, this was early two thousands. I had, I had purchased a 1977 FJ 40. It was this great uncut truck. And I remember ordering the front axle rebuild kit from you guys. And I don't even think that we, in fact, I'm almost certain we didn't know who each other was. Uh, But I remember part of what made that experience so positive is to be able to call and have the person that answers the call be 
totally familiar with the vehicle. And it gave me a lot of confidence in purchasing the rebuild kit because to me, it seemed like this black art of how in the world am I going to get this? I mean, I knew it was just one bolt at a time, but you want to make sure that you don't get your daily driver torn down and then halfway through it, you've got the wrong part or the wrong bearing or whatever. So to be able to talk to somebody on the phone that understood like, oh yeah, like no, there was no question in your voice like, oh, I think it'll work. And it may not even have been you that I talked to. It probably was. But uh, it's just it, I think that was my memory. My first memory of interacting with with you was and your company was just this wealth of knowledge around Land Cruisers. I think that that's probably part of the success is that you guys have done a good job of staying focused on the Toyota mark on the even you guys do. Uh, some parts for for Lexus as well. But you guys have really stayed focused on those vehicles that you know well and that you can service your customers well. You see that as being one of the strengths? Absolutely. And that's been a focus. We realized that with some of the brands we rep and some of the parts we carry, we could certainly branch out and start carrying parts or selling those parts for other vehicle platforms. But I'll be the first to say, I don't know enough about those to confidently sell those parts. And I don't want to sell something that we can't provide customer service for both when they call and ask, hey, will it fit? But also after the fact, when they maybe when they're installing it or perhaps if they do have a problem with it, if we can't solve that, we, we don't want to be the company that always puts that back on the manufacturer and says, hey, we sold it to you, but call them. They made it. We like to be able to solve those problems. And with, with like the knuckle kit you mentioned, we've really focused on kits. They come with everything you need, be it a suspension system or a knuckle rebuild kit or a transmission kit. We've just worked with good manufacturers, uh, good vetted parts. A lot of them are OE components or manufacturers that make them for OE components and then assemble those as uh, a full comprehensive kit. So you don't have to walk into a parts store and say, I need, you know, the 37 different parts that make an up rebuild kit. We give those to you with one part number. And And you buy a lot of this stuff direct from Japan, don't you? We do. Yeah. We import from uh, quite a few different places, but particularly Japan and Australia, we bring in a lot of components. Obviously Land Cruisers and Toyotas are big in those markets. So we can find good manufacturers there that, uh, you know, have the parts we're looking for. All of, I mean, the success you've had in business is it's so notable, but some of the stuff that really makes you interesting is your is your passion for Land Cruisers and the amount of traveling that you've done in recent years. And then also your success as a driver as part of a racing team as well, which congratulations on your first place finish in the Baja 1000 uh, a couple days ago, right? Two days ago. Yeah. I, got, <laughs> you're still, I can't believe you're awake right, right now. Yeah. <laughs> got home less than 24 hours ago. And we, we did have a good run. Yeah, I've always been, and that's why I got in the business. It wasn't kind of an inverse. Sometimes you see companies, they see a market and they, they take advantage of that and hop in and and seize that opportunity. And that's a great way to do it if you see an opportunity. Mine was from a different approach. I, I bought a Land Cruiser when I was 15 years old, and my dad and I started fixing that up as a high school vehicle, a 1968 FJ40. And I quickly fell in love with Land Cruisers. And as anyone that's got a unique vehicle, be it a, an older Land Rover, an older Jeep, you understand that you don't go anywhere without like running into somebody that used to have one of those sure. and has an endearing story about why they love that. And I, I think I kind of gravitated to that. And it was, it was just fun to get to know other Toyota, uh, you know, other Toyota owners and other Land Cruiser owners specifically. And that kind of grew into uh, my, my love and uh, fast forward to now it's kind of 
every part of my life. I yeah. <laughs> work with land cruisers all day long, but my weekends usually involve land cruisers of some, whether it be driving in some, you know, remote place or racing one or just working on one at my house. Sure. So it's, a, yeah, I, I guess I'm not burned out on them yet if I've made it this far <laughs> totally. in life. And, and I still like get giddy when I see a land cruiser I've never been in before or get to go drive something I haven't, uh, had the opportunity to yet. Absolutely. And do you still have that original anchor? You know, I don't. I know where it's at. It belongs to a customer and a friend. I, you know, the you, you say you should never sell one, but I sold it for a reason then, and I don't necessarily regret it. I've had yeah. the opportunity to buy it twice, buy back twice, but I've got some others that kind of fill that role, and maybe one day it'll end up back around. But it's fun to see somebody else still out using it and enjoying it, and he does, uh, so I can certainly- Oh, that's awesome. Take, yeah, makes me, makes me happy to see it still out getting used. So if you were- to summarize, now that you have traveled so much around the world in Land Cruisers, in addition to your early childhood and young adult years loving Land Cruisers, what is it about Land Cruisers for you? If you were to kind of summarize why they're such an important option for you when you purchase a vehicle. Yeah, for me, I'd say just the reliability. They've, I've, they've taken me, and, and there's a lot of great platforms out there. You and I have talked about a lot of neat opportunities and options there are on the market these days, but I just fall back on it's the reliable choice for me. It's not always the you know the cutting edge. It's not always got the most latest and greatest features, but I just know that it's always going to get me home. And, and through that, I've met a lot of uh, fellow travelers and, and dear friends the people that I spend a lot of time with that also had that like mentality. So it's easy for us to to plan and go do a trip all knowing that we kind of don't worry about the vehicle. That's not even the, the big part of our trip. It's just, we all know, hey, he's got a vehicle that's going to get there and get us home. So it's not a biggie to plan a trip down to Baja. I don't worry about what they're bringing. I know that They've got that dialed, they're set. We can just go and experience, have a good time. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some of the places that you and I have been, whether it's the Road of Bones in Russia or in the middle of the, you know, South America or in the middle of the, the Greenland ice sheet in a Toyota, I've never had a Toyota leave me stranded. Have you ever had a Land Cruiser leave you stranded? No, nothing catastrophic. I mean, and anything that did was usually something we did to it. Sure. You know, you, you race the Baja 1000, anything can happen. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But it's always it's always like an aftermarket, something we've done or just, you know, the the nature of, of racing. But yeah, as far as like travel like that, no, nothing that's been a catastrophic failure. They've always, always got me home. And it's never been a worry. I'd say that's the bigger component too, is it's never worried about your vehicle. Cause it's stressful to go into a trip thinking like, Hey, am I going to be the guy that holds up an entire group? Sure. Am I going to be the guy that is calling for help? It's nice. Just that's, that's not even in the picture. You just know it's a good, reliable vehicle. Certainly things can happen. They're not fallible, but uh, we've relied on them. I mean, when we were in Greenland, did we ever worry about the no. Toyota making it? No, we were worried about whether we had enough fuel that's on us. Yep. Greg did an amazing job, of course, with the planning of that. So we always did. We were worried about, hey, we're going to have enough food, but we never worried about, are these trucks going to get us back? Yeah, was never we, a worry. Yeah. And even anything that we re- started working on, it was fair. Although it was watching Torby work on a Toyota was an impressive thing. But the Ice Ninja. The Ice Ninja. Yeah. It was incredible. Amazing. But they all did get us across that ice sheet and back again. So for you, then it sounds like it's the trust that you have in the Land Cruiser to allow you to have the adventure that you want to have. And what are some of the other things that you think make a Land Cruiser special? I think the community is a big part. It's, it's one of the, uh, like, 
a lot of unique vehicles, you can find uh, a community around it. And that's, that's interesting. It's neat. It's fun. It's great to get out with like-minded people in similar vehicles. Yeah. I don't, that's not an emphasis. I'm happy to go, you know, I'll travel anywhere with anybody. That's the point is the travel, not don't get too vehicle centric, but it is fun to be out with, with a bunch of old FJ forties out on the trail. There's totally. something, something special about bouncing down the road there. Uh, and then I would say the ability to accessorize them and build them the way you want. There's so many great options being that they're global platforms. Not all the solutions are the easiest to find in the United States because the Land Cruiser is so big in other markets and, and less so here, but we can find anything you want to build them. And that's, that is a more difficult thing with some unique platforms or different options. But with Toyotas, you can usually get front and rear bumper, a variety of different, you know, neat suspension options, different accessories to, to dial it in for the needs you have. Yeah, I've definitely found that uh, 200 is, an, is a great example of that is this is a vehicle that is sold everywhere in the world, essentially. It may have a different engine, but for the most part, the vehicle is the same. So if you were to buy a new Heritage Edition 200 Series Land Cruiser and you needed to get a lower control arm somewhere in Uzbekistan, they're going to have the ability to fix a 200 Series Land Cruiser there because they see those vehicles. They sell them to their dignitaries. They sell them to the diplomats. They sell them to the to the local governance. A lot of the militaries use them. Um, yeah, I think one of the first times I saw a heavily modified 200 series was 2010. And I was, I think I was in Uzbekistan or maybe in Georgia. I was in Georgia, the country of Georgia. And this black 200 lifted snorkel, everything rolls into this gas station. I was like, well, look at that thing. And then all these guys step out with MP5s, you know, so it was, it was the real deal. It was the real deal. And you could tell it had been up armored and everything else like that. But I mean, it, those vehicles, they're not only so durable in the civilian form, but because they're so strong. That's why they're used as a military platform as well. And it's just unfortunate that we don't see more of them sold because the more new 200 series Land Cruisers are sold, the more opportunity there is for that second buyer um, to really enjoy them and, and use them for decades of travel uh, because they are expensive new. They are, they really yeah, are. Yeah. They're a premium vehicle that, and that comes with a premium price. And that does make it uh, more difficult to look at them as a new car option, but certainly we have customers that do and a lot of travelers do, but I, yeah, most are looking at them on the secondhand option. You've had dozens of Land Cruisers. What is your most favorite Land Cruiser of all the ones that you've owned? You know, and I'm going to steal a line from our good friend, uh, Greg Miller, and that's the one I'm driving currently. <laughs> you know, that's my de facto answer. And he, he says it so eloquently, that's true. But if I had to choose one, I love, I've got a little uh, Japanese import BJ74. It's a turbo diesel. It is, it's right-hand drive. I haven't had any problems driving around the, the U.S. and I've had it all over the Western U.S. Just a fun little Land Cruiser to drive. Yeah, it is. That one, that one is really cool. I remember how excited you were when you got it. Yeah, not the fastest. It's not the, you know, it certainly doesn't have the, the room inside of a 200 series. It's not a pickup truck that I can throw things, you know, throw a bunch of stuff in the back of, but it's just a perfect little trail land cruiser. And for the the things I do most on a weekend here in Utah, heading up to the mountains that I love, it's the perfect little land cruiser just to hop in. And I, I there's never a time I'm driving it that I don't have a smile on my face. Even if I'm like the slow guy going up the canyon, you know, cars are swerving, sure. swerving around me and I've still got a smile on my face. And nobody gets mad at you when you're driving an old land cruiser going slow. It doesn't seem like it. They, yeah. they kind of even they get it. Even people, yeah, everybody get and we both have a mutual friend in Steve who mm -hmm. imports those 70 series Land Cruisers, Land Cruisers Direct. They do a great job of bringing these cars in. Is that something that Steve is still doing? In he is. Yeah, def definitely still doing. And that that exact BJ74 came through Steve. Yeah, mine did as well. Yeah, so. yeah you had a really clean, 
that 74 of yours was also clean one. They're just a good size wheelbase, a, a great truck. And he does find really good units out of Japan that have, you know, good, clean, known history. So you kind of know what you're getting before it lands over here. And that uh, BJ74 is certainly an example of that. It's been a perfect vehicle for me. It's never once left me wanting or stranded. Yeah, right? I was really impressed with uh, not only, uh, you expect the trail capability to be quite good. And it was. Um, in fact, I found that the, the leaf springs were more capable than the coil sprung trucks, more articulation. But it was, it was surprising easy to drive on the road. With that five-speed, it settles the diesel down nicely. That turbo actually lets it do regular highway speeds. Um, it's a lot more quiet than like a 40 or I would say even than a 60. Um, I was really impressed with how easy that car was to drive. And it's nice to see that we can finally get them in because they're such a they, they literally are the pinnacle Land Cruiser for travel because uh, they are so ubiquitous and they are so simple and they're so easy to modify and a lot of interior space and stuff. And, and, uh, for me, the first time I ever drove a 70 series was when I raced in the Outback Challenge. So it was a it was a PZJ 73. Okay, yeah, the five cylinder. <clears throat> so and they turbocharged it. Um, so it got some decent power out of it. But that was the first time I ever drove a 70 series back in 2006. And I'm talking about getting thrown into the deep end of the pool with that thing. But um, that was why it was so fun to get a 74, which is the same wheelbase. Yeah, and exactly same wheelbase. Yeah, get that carb kind of back in my life for a little bit. Yeah, that would have been a neat experience to hop right in a. 70 series to get a drive one for the first time, but also drive one in a race the first <laughs> yeah, time, right? That, that's, yeah. that's quite the trial by fire. They are, they're neat platforms. It is, it is great, great trail manners too. I, I find it that wheelbase is really well, but just a fun truck to drive on the trail. It's kind of narrow. The narrow body on a 70 series makes it pretty easy to it move it around compared to a bigger chassis. And I'd, I'd say it's like the most modern version of an FJ40. Everyone yeah. thinks of the FJ40 is the perfect trail vehicle. And I wouldn't disagree for many situations. It's a, it is a great answer. The 70 series, just a little longer, a little more modern drivetrain. And like I said, a little quiet and a little quieter inside. You can yep. certainly stomach a long road trip in it. It's it's a nice vehicle. And they addressed a lot of the corrosion issues and the frames a little better, a little stronger, less flex in the frame and less likelihood of the um, like the shackle points failing. And they they fixed a lot of absolutely the, of the FJ40 yeah. issues with the 70. And of course, it's still being made today, which is amazing. Another thing that I thought would be fun to talk about for the listener to really understand some of the benefits of competitive driving. Um, you and I have done, I mean, we we crossed the road of bones together. We drove across South America together and we did a lot of driving in Africa together. And one of the things that I always noticed with you was your competency as a driver. And it wasn't that you were driving fast or being excessive. It was just the general competency of, of really all the drivers we had along for Expedition 7. But it was that consistency. You were the one guy I never had to worry about when you were behind the wheel. Because as we find with travel, the unexpected can happen in a moment. And um, those close calls, even if you're being very careful or you're, if you're very competent, those close calls do come up. Sometimes you barely evade them through that combination of experience and muscle memory. Have you found that racing Land Cruisers has also made you a better driver for as an overlander? And, and in, it, what, in what ways? What have you learned by that process of being a, a racer as well? I'd absolutely say it, it's definitely put a different perspective of uh, a lot of different directions, both from the drive 
driving aspect, but also the mechanical sympathy behind the wheel too, knowing what that vehicle can handle and how to uh, treat that and make it last as long as possible. That's a big factor in the race car. You and I, it's funny you mentioned that. We had a conversation. I don't know if you remember this. We were at Paul May's house for a barbecue during one of the outdoor retailer shows here in Salt Lake. And we were talking about the Baja 1000. It was one of our early ones. So this would have been, you know, eight, eight, 10 years ago now. And you said, I remember you saying your only job is to hand that car off to the next guy, a running vehicle. And we still look at it to this day, uh, to that point, like we can go out there and drive as fast as we feel comfortable and that's okay. Uh, but as fast as you feel comfortable, but also knowing my only job, my, my job is not to finish the race right out of the start line. Or if I'm driving a middle leg, it's to hand off a, a car that, that still works back to the next driver that's going to hop in there. And I think you can take that to your everyday driving and certainly overland trips that if you push the vehicle too far, that's on you. That's your fault. If it you, is, yeah. if you outdrive both your own capabilities, but the vehicle, uh, that's when disasters happen. And we always said with Expedition 7 that the most dangerous thing we were going to do the whole time, despite traveling through very remote and sometimes, uh, you know, the media would tell you less than friendly or hostile places that, that our only worry was ever driving. That's and, right. and a lot of times it was the other driver. So I would say just having a healthy respect for both the capabilities, but also the vulnerabilities of any vehicle, it's it's an important part to take into the planning of a trip and the way you drive. And I, definitely with Expedition 7, I always just had the utmost respect for those vehicles. One, it didn't belong to me. And yeah. the other part was it still had a long way to go and not just a long way, like we're talking multiple continents to go. So yeah. if we were to break something or, or heaven forbid, have an accident when we were in uh, Africa, South Africa, or doing the Namibia coast there, that may kind of ruin a trip for other people and for the whole duration of that event and the whole plan of Expedition 7, that would have been heartbreaking. So I just always came into it with a healthy respect for what the vehicle could do, what my skills were, and, and didn't outdrive those. Look at it as don't don't outrun what your skills are behind the wheel. Yeah, and oftentimes people will do that. They'll say, oh, I, I only drive at 100% um, occasionally just for fun. And that always worries me. It's like, I want to hear 80% for fun. Because if you don't have anything left in the tank, when, when one of those things, say you have a blowout at high speed, do you still have enough? Does the vehicle still have enough control? You still have enough experience as a driver to correct for a blowout when you're pushing things to the limit. And one of the things that we learned through Expedition 7 was it reinforced that idea of mechanical sympathy. That's our job as a driver is to be mechanically sympathetic to the vehicle that we're driving. It's really easy to get caught up in an idea of a Land Cruiser being indestructible. Uh, a Land Cruiser is very durable, but everything has its mechanical limits. And we, you and I were talking last night about you going through the whoop section just recently on the Baja 1000. And you, you said like every once in a while you get it wrong and you plant that front end really hard and you realize this truck's only got a few of those in it. And that's a 200 series Land Cruiser, which is one of the strongest vehicles available on the market. But you realize like they've really, those knuckles and all of those suspension connection points and the shock, they've only got so many of those hits in them before something's going to fail. And that's where, for those that are listening, when we drive our vehicles and we're in challenging terrain, we always want to give a significant buffer because we don't know who's coming at us. We don't know the other vehicles that are on the road. We don't know if there's going to be a washout or a, a giant boulder in the middle of the road. Um, it's even more important on motorcycles as, you, as you've experienced as well, Kurt. So that mechanical sympathy is really critical because the goal is to preserve the asset. We call it preserving the asset when we talk about um, vehicle training and mobility training, but it really is preserving the vehicle for future adventures or for the next driver if you're right. a, if you're a race car driver uh, like you like you do and and I think that that is such an important thing to remind ourselves 
themselves of. It doesn't mean you can't have fun. It doesn't mean that when the road straightens out and you've got some good line of sight and you can see what's happening and maybe there's a couple turns in that road, doesn't mean you don't have fun and drifted a little bit or, you know, even loft the vehicle on occasions or whatever. But um, it's about making sure that when you do that, you're not going to end your trip because you wad the thing up. So, right. Yeah. Always leave yourself an out. You know, always have a backup plan, even when you're, you know, it's, it's hard to get in that mentality when you're racing. But even if you're overlanding, you're bombing down a dirt road, but leave yourself an out. Where am I going to go if something goes sideways? Where am I going to go if I have a tire blowout? You know, always leave that out and leave yourself a little bit of room. We like to say we, exactly that 80%. If you're driving 100%, you're driving way too fast. Way too fast. Can the car handle it? Probably. But you can't if something pops up. Yeah, you start writing checks that you don't have That's the it. skills to cash. That's it. And and plus, you can't do it for that many hours and expect yourself to not make mistakes. Um, you know, there are drivers that are much better than me in the world that probably don't make those mistakes. But I realize that I'm human and that I am fallible as a driver. And even with the experience that I have, there are scenarios that can come up that maybe I'm a little tired or maybe I'm a little undernourished or, or I'm not well hydrated or uh, I'm driving a, a left-hand drive vehicle in a right-hand drive country. And there's all of these variables that start to stack up and that we, we talk about those cascades of events. And that's exactly how that starts is you're a little tired. You got away a little later in the morning than you wanted. So you're in a rush. Um, you didn't do it your morning check on the vehicle to see if that sh- you didn't realize that that shock had come off the night before. So um, being very mindful of that as a driver is key. So another thing that, that came to mind kind of along the same subject matter, but what are some of the preparations that you've done for the 200 series for the Baja races that you think correlate directly to the overlander that's preparing a similar vehicle? What are some of the things that you've learned in that environment that you thought, wow, that's really changed my perspective? Maybe something that you learned that was new that came from racing and setting up a car. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of takeaways we found say that, you know, a thousand miles in a desert race on that chassis is probably equivalent to perhaps a hundred thousand miles, even with fair and and moderate, a lot of off-road use in a daily driver 200 series, say like my personal one. So things that fell or start to get weak or wounded in a thousand miles are kind of things we probably need to look at addressing in a hundred thousand or 150,000 miles on a normal vehicle. So it's kind of been interesting to see what those items were. We run in a stock class in the 1000 in, in desert racing. So we're limited on the things that we can modify and change. And ironically, that helps us because we can't modify some of those systems that perhaps would be better as a short term fix, maybe make it handle or have more power. Sure. But instead, that drivetrain in that Land Cruiser is 100% stock. That's a stock engine, stock tranny, stock T case. We don't have problems with those. Those are never the things we have problems with. Uh, but the things that the takeaways is say you kind of touched on preventive maintenance and just inspection. Uh, I think a, a key to our success in the number of races that car has finished, traditionally desert racing has got about a 50% attrition rate. Well, half of the people that start a race will actually finish that race. We do significantly better. One, we're a slower class, so that helps, admittedly. We're not like guys out front. It's it's a lot harder to pace yourself when you're the guy in the front, so you're more prone to have a significant failure or damage or accident. We're a little slower kind of towards the back of the pack where we start in a stock class, but the, the big thing, I think, is our prep, the time we spend dismantling and inspecting everything, and I found as you carry that over to your personal vehicle, you mentioned the, the vehicle walk-around. That is a, a very important portion of every day, every morning on a trip, doing a quick vehicle walk-around because as, as the things we've experienced together on our 
our trips and the things we've all had in our own days fail, it's usually something that you might have spotted the night before, very likely would have. A hole in the tire, a, a tire damaged sidewall. You know, sure, a sidewall can fail immediately if you hit something, but a lot of times it's going to be a sidewall that already had damage and then now you're going to suffer that the next day and unfortunately perhaps speed, but could be a broken shock, could be damaged steering, something loose, something bent. And if you do that walk around both the morning of a, a trip or, you know, each day before you head out, but more importantly, before you leave on a big trip, all too often you see people finding something that's probably been worn out for months, sure. but you're finding it on day two or day three of the trip and now it's presenting a serious issue. Now you're running behind or scrambling to find parts in, in often places that they're not available. I've been so grateful for those daily checks. I think even I can think of several scenarios on E7 where I noticed uh, a bolt backing out of a lower shock mount. And if I hadn't checked the car daily, the bolt would have been gone eventually. So to be able to just throw a spanner on it and tighten it up, as opposed to now trying to find a shouldered bolt like that in the middle of nowhere, you know, that's an appropriate fix. That's That can be a lot more difficult. Those daily inspections and then those weekly deeper dive inspections into the vehicle where you're you're checking all of the fluids, you're checking double checking your electrical systems, putting your hand on a lot of these components and testing a lot of these components before you need them, plugging in the winch on that weekly inspection and cycling the winch to make sure that it works. Because when you get into that situation where there's the rising tide on the coast and you've got to winch out, that is really important to know that those systems work. It's not the time to be troubleshooting. It's really not. It's stressful. And I think that was one of the great joys for me of E7 is we were able to vet out the things that people talk about as best practice, which I'm become a lot more careful of using that term because I think that anything that we say is best practice probably has a falsifiability to it. So if you talk about a daily inspection, how often do you find something in a daily inspection? It's probably very rare. Or would you have found it in a weekly inspection and is maybe the falsifiability of, well, you've taken all of this time every single day and you've, that's less time that you've spent traveling or it, it, it leads to maybe more issues with you coming into camp later because you took that time in the morning. But one of the things that I really liked about E7 is we were able to come into it with these fairly well-formed ideas around what would be the best practice for us as a team on that trip. And we were really able to validate what worked. And I, and I think that doing those daily inspections, for me, it was very reinforcing how important that is. Did you find the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. We always knew they were going to get us there. The vehicles were going to get us where we were heading each day. I think part of that is that we were doing our due diligence and checking those things. Uh, Back to the racing, we do the same thing. Every single pit that when we stop that car, we do a driver change, we take fuel. We also inspect the steering. Where the driver hops out and hands off the car to the next guy, he sits there and wiggles the steering wheel back and forth. I mean, that's a procedure. We've got two eyeballs underneath the car looking at those components. We check every suspension bolt at every pit. We're not necessarily putting a wrench on them, but like a paint mark. And I think to carry that back over, I do that on my, my personal vehicles. And you're right, you can get over the top if you're doing that every day and maybe over inspecting, but I think more people would fall guilty of never inspecting those sure, items sure. and it could prevent problems. And with E7, I think we had a good system down that every morning we were spending, you know, just five or 10 minutes yep. while you're still packing up. It doesn't have to be a big, uh, big orchestrated affair, but certainly before your trip, you should be doing those things before you leave home. And then the morning of just do a quick walk around and make sure everything looks right. Are there, are there lug nuts missing? Are there, you're going to see those big problems. And 
a lot of times uh, you can you know, stop a catastrophic failure by just a quick eyeball on parts. I also found that for me, it was it was almost like setting the intention of the day because we would we'd get up, we'd break camp, and then you'd take that time to spend with the vehicle that you were about to drive. And a lot of times we'd be swapping drivers and swapping people from vehicle to vehicle. And if you're now checking the next vehicle, it's another set of eyeballs on that truck. And it reminds us of the fact that we're not just hopping in for another daily commute. We're about to cross the Namib desert Mm -hmm. or we're in the middle of the road of bones in Russia or we're in the deepest part of Patagonia and repairing these problems is going to be a much it's going to be a difficult challenge if we don't do that in the beginning of the day so I I think that that was really important and then we would always have kind of our daily driver meeting where um, and I and I look back on that and there was probably some things that I would have done different that I realize now that we did better like on the Greenland crossing where we did more of a check-in on us as individuals we were keeping a better eye on how fatigued people were, what was their general, you know, countenance, their mood, how were, you know, were people hydrating, were they eating well, Um, you know, and having Dr. John Solberg with us in Greenland, I think he did a really good job. In many, many cases, we didn't know he was doing it, but he was constantly checking in on how we were doing as individuals because it was so, so fatiguing. Yeah, absolutely. Something I definitely appreciated with Greenland, we were keeping an eye on that. Uh, Another is Clay, Clay Croft with uh, Expedition Overland, who I've been fortunate to travel a lot. Clay is really good about that. Like a daily check on, Hey man, where are you at on a one to 10? How are you yeah. feeling? You know, and if that, that number sliding over time, we're getting, you're pushing it further and further each day, running those long marathon runs, you know, and getting, getting into camp late, still getting up early and moving that, that starts to cascade and stack up. And that's when accidents are going to happen. Sure. Problems are going to take place is you start getting fatigued behind the wheel. So I think it, that's a very important thing to recognize. And it doesn't have to be a big trip to have that conversation either. It could be your weekend trip with buddies, like just talk it out. Are we, are we over? driving somebody pushing too hard trying to get too many miles each day and that's when you know somebody's going to have a bad trip mm. be it an accident or just not enjoy themselves because they are going too fast and i think we kind of with expedition seven maybe to some part we didn't need to have that conversation too much because we all knew everybody loved to drive so sure. we kind of you know embraced that but there were definitely times we pushed late into the nights for many many days in a row and it was it was definitely stacking up yeah there was there was one story i remember we were we were we hit we hit those frost heaves on uh, the road of bones and rush in Russia, I think there was somebody sleeping in the back of a Land Cruiser when we ju- when we jumped. Got airborne. <laughs> we jumped at about yeah at about a hundred kilometers an hour. We jumped a seventy series on a highway. <laughs> Those yeah. were some gnarly frost heat. That, that was insane. Yeah, that was a road you could just never let your guard down. Be it no. other drivers, the totally. traffic, but the just the road itself was probably the most dangerous part. Was how rough that road was in portions. I still remember coming up on that bridge, and I was in the lead vehicle. There was only two of us, two vehicles on that particular trip, and it, I think it was an Audi or a seven series BMW that was passing me as this semi was coming the other way and and how he I got as far over as I could without going off the bridge and how he threaded that needle I mean they were nuts they were literally I mean wonderful people but when they got drunk and were driving it was that's there's a reason why there's so many compilation videos on YouTube of Russian drivers oh, absolutely that was what we experienced every day yeah when you you picked us up at the airport and you said like hey buckle in man this is pretty crazy driving over here <laughs> and we thought like oh, shit. 
sure, sure it is. We've done a lot of other travel together at that point. And I, uh, I definitely put a little more emphasis on how crazy it was going to be just in the drive from the airport back to where we were picking up the, rest oh, of the that's vehicles right. and traffic was all over. <laughs> Nobody was paying any attention to red lights. There was yeah. trains coming through the middle of intersections. And it was, it was definitely every man for himself on those roads. I do remember that. Yeah. I, re- I, re- I remember how you, by the time we got to the hotel, you guys were like, okay, I think right. we, yeah. I think we understand. We, we can do happening. this, but this is the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. And you did at least, you did five, if was it five or six of the, of the seven continents with E7? I did five of the Expedition 7 continents. Yeah. Yep. And then you've done several of the big trips with Clay, um, which this is just a, a shout out to a mutual friend of ours, Clay Croft with X Overland. Make sure you guys check them out on YouTube. I think that they've got um, their series now also on Amazon, right? Wonderful human beings, incredible organization, and their all of their work is so ins- inspirational. Some of their, their recent solo series is really great. Um, they're not a sponsor of this. Obviously, we just love them as people. So make sure you check them out. But you've done several big trips with the ex-Overland crew. Um, you did Central America and South America. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. I've actually been part of uh, all the seasons in the last, you know, f- I think, five years now. Yeah. So we started in Central America. It was just a mutual. I, we'd known Clay. Clay had done some Expedition 7 trips with us. I had just finished driving through Central America with Expedition 7. We'd made our way up through, uh, shipped from South America to Panama and finished the drive up to the United States. And Clay was looking at heading down that direction. So we were just having a bunch of phone calls and, Hey man, where did you guys, where did you do when you're in this country? Or what did you do at this border? How was it? And I just, I was helping him wherever I could. And he finally just said like, Hey, can you go? Can you, can you come with us? You've just, you've come the other direction, just done that trip. And of course I, I never turned down those opportunities when they present themselves whenever possible and said, yeah, let's do it. And I really thought it was just going to be a, a Central America trip. Go, go do that with them. And a fantastic crew. It was a lot of fun to get to know them all. And then that turned into South America. And since we've done, you know, uh, Mackenzie trail up in Canada, the Whipsaw, Australia. So we've been able to been really fortunate to spend a lot of other time doing trips with the, with the team and um, yeah, fantastic, fantastic humans. What are some of the key takeaways that you've had from your trips with X Overland? You just mentioned how good of a job Clay does checking in on you guys every day. Is there anything else, a couple other um, hacks or processes that they use that you really like and you think people that are listening can benefit in their own travels? I think uh, simplicity. It's it's easy to get too caught up in, in how those vehicles are built. And I think in the earlier days of XO, and, and myself included, my own personal travel, we all it was all about how much gear you could have on the vehicle. And, and Clay's really taken an emphasis these last uh, few years and few trips is, you know, let's start leaving items behind. I mean, we left a donated a set of jack stands in Central America. It's just like, man, why are we packing these things around? We can find these if we ever needed them. And that's just a, a one little micro example. But uh, scaling back the amount of gear we bring makes the trip that much more enjoyable. And we've certainly found that on the the XO trips that, uh, you know, being more mindful of what you bring and is it, does it have a couple uses? Uh, it, can we find that stuff in country? Why are we, why bring a whole ton of food if we're traveling down to Central America where they have fantastic food, right? Why, why take spare parts that we can find at any auto port store along the way? So don't get too, you know, over to the top. If you're going to be in remote areas, obviously it makes sense, but I'd just say being mindful of your packing. And then uh, along with that, I'd say, be mindful of the components you choose. Uh, choosing a high quality component obviously has a little more sting up front, maybe when you purchase it, because it is a higher cost, but that higher cost comes at a greater satisfaction when it lasts forever. Maybe it's a lifetime piece of gear. It's a sleeping bag that you're going to have for the rest of your life. 
life. Maybe it's a, a part on your vehicle. It's easy to look at a, a less expensive option and say, hey, it does the exact same thing. But if it if it breaks halfway through your trip, man, that's going to sting far more than the cost of that better known component. And I think the the gear that Exo has chosen and obviously worked with is, is a good example of that, that we never fill those stings of equipment. Perhaps we over plan the equipment, but we never fill the sting of that when we're actually on the trips. It's You never even think twice about what that cost or the pains it took to get those. You just enjoy it. Yeah, because oftentimes these are trips of a lifetime and to buy a less expensive winch, um, you're probably better off just not having a winch at all because th- they can be sources of frustration. You're, you're better off if you're going to modify a stock vehicle, particularly a stock Land Cruiser, if you're going to modify it in any way, you better make sure that it is an excellent component because you're better off leaving it stock in most cases in many you're better cases. you're better off just leaving the car stock if you're going to go with something less expensive so if you're going to change out suspension make sure that you go with a really high quality suspension if you're going to if you're going to swap out uh, something in the drive line make sure right. make sure that you really need to do that because otherwise those things can be um, and they're difficult like imagine some of these race suspensions for example that people put on their vehicles um, if you need to just swap swap back to a stock coil oftentimes the buckets are modified the lower mounting points are modified there's or they've gone with wider control arms try to replace a a wider control arm in the middle of South America you can't you're going to be you're going to be shipping that part in whereas if you just went just kept it stock there's probably a 200 series lower control arm somewhere in South America that you can that you can get um, so I think mi- minimizing those modifications absolutely that's really key yeah so that's the takeaway and I'd say the last one is uh, just working as a team Clay's done a remarkable job with Expedition Overland Greg obviously Greg did it with uh, Expedition 7 choosing just the, the right people to be in the right places were they there to be a driver there to do other functions capture it via video and photography is yep. yeah, choosing a good team and, and I think that goes even for your personal trips, it doesn't have to be super over the top organized, but just choose people that you want to spend time with on your trips. You're going to find that uh, you have a far, far more enjoyable uh, adventure. Yeah, you're you're way better off bringing the person with less experience, but a better attitude than the person with more experience and a little more toxicity. You'll just, especially when you're driving vehicles, modern vehicles, you just don't have that many problems anymore. So you're way you're going to be spending a lot of hours yeah. in a car with somebody. <laughs> I think that reminds me of when we were on E7. Then what was the total number of businesses that Jeremiah and you uh, uh, devised on that trip? Hundreds? Probably into the hundreds. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we came up with a business that would provide a solution for about any problem we encountered. And most of those were pretty facetious problems. Yeah. Like importing beef jerky to places we couldn't find teriyaki jerky or something. You know, yeah, they, they weren't always plausible businesses, but they were... They were fun road conversations. Oh, it was, yeah, we would have so much fun. And and uh, just the, the music you end up listening to and the yeah, the fun you end up having along the way if you don't take travel too seriously. And that's where the key is to who we surround ourselves, not only in life, but even more importantly in our travels. Because you want, when things to go bad, you want someone to remain calm and to be kind and mindful of the others in the group. And it's really interesting, someone who's very anxious or someone who's very toxic, uh, they degrade very quickly in those settings and it can be very destructive. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, to summarize, I'd absolutely agree that you're better to surround yourself with people that have taken an emphasis on investing in themselves through quality training and yep. and, and are competent in what they're going to be doing.
doing in the travel, but less so about like maybe how built their vehicle is. I mean, if you're looking at that as an index of whether they should join you on a trip or whether you should invite them or plan a trip with them, that's probably the wrong way to look at it. Choose somebody that's invested in themselves of, you know, just being a, a good traveler and somebody that you want to spend time with both in the car, but around the campfire every night too. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple rapid fire questions. What is, what was your favorite trip you've done to date? That's a tough one. Uh, I'd say it's hard to top Greenland. That was a pretty amazing adventure. Definitely type two fun. I mean, while there were plenty of moments we were having fun while we were doing the trip, I'd say that the bulk of the fun is as you unpack the memories from that trip when you got home and you thought out. Like a stove catching fire. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Scott putting on a stove fire in the tent yeah. and uh, the, the number of vehicle breakdowns. And it got to the point where the any of the vehicle breakdowns were were pretty much just comical, like how fun, like, oh, really? We got to go do that. And it was, it was all, you know, just things wearing out from the severe and harsh conditions, the trailer hitches, the, you know, breaking a CV, that cold weather and uh, such large tires and the demanding terrain. But it got to the point where it was like, all right, let's go fix this. You know, we just had smiles on and like, what next? Bring it on, bring it on. Yeah, it was incredible the number of things that happened. I mean, and it none of them were catastrophic, but you're right. They were just like a coil spring would break and then, or a CV would break. And and replacing a CV axle at minus 30 is, is a chore. It's challenging. It is really, I mean, I was so impressed by everyone on that trip, you know, where they stepped up when they needed to step up. And I think that made such a huge difference. So, non-type two fun? What was your type one fun? Like, what was the most fun trip you've been on? Man, that's going to be a tough one to put. Uh, Australia. Our, yeah. our trip, the Expedition 7 trip through Australia, there was just never a moment I didn't have a smile on my face. Of course, every, you can't throw a, a, a stick over there without seeing a cool Land Cruiser. So right. I was just all day long spotting out Land Cruisers <laughs> like, oh, there's a, oh, there's one. And, you know, what? I could have spent a year they're just looking at Land Cruisers. So that, that's an enjoyable one. Australia is such a friendly place to travel. It really is. Such legitimate travel, so remote in those areas, but so plausible to go do and, and achievable to plan a trip over there, hire a vehicle. I've been over, been fortunate to go over a, a handful of times now. My, my wife and I spent a month there traveling with some dear friends and I, nothing about Australia turns me off. I mean, like I love everything about it. And our trip there with Expedition 7, being able to cross the Canning Stock Route, we had failures. We had some rough nights there, rough moments. It was awesome. Them. We were, we were always it. smiling about it. We were, we were laughing and smiling the whole time. I remember when we were, when we got, I think it was a 12 hour stuck, something yeah. like that. And uh, Kyle and you just, there was something in the water that was literally biting you. Yeah, we call you couldn't them, see it. We call them assassin tadpoles. And I don't know what they are to this day, but it was like little fish nibbling on you. I don't know if it was a bug of some sort. It was... <laughs> It was a wormhole night because it seemed like we were driving. It was like kind of late evening. We were starting to look for a camp. And then the next thing I knew, it was like two days later. I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know right. how it all happened. It was a wormhole because we <laughs> was kind of never quit driving. We, we had uh, some obligations to get to uh, Kunaraji. To, yeah. Uh, we had some team members flying out. So we knew we had to get there and it just turned into a push. But that's the that's the memory I have of that is how fun that was. And That was amazing. Yeah, being stuck in the water for 12 hours seems about right. Yeah, I think yeah. that's about what we were. But that was one of my highlights from the trip. It was just amazing to watch everybody work together and overcoming that challenge of being really, really stuck in a Land Cruiser. Yeah, and we needed all the gear we had. We yeah. Used, I mean, we were high lifting, we were winching. We had, I think we had 12 max tracks out yep. at one point. That's right. One of them, I think, is still there. Right. One we never found, and it wasn't for lack of effort. We, <laughs> yeah, we tried. We probed with a shovel. It just, it's in the mud somewhere. It's, it's somewhere yeah. still in Australia. We, we've never left anything behind like that, but we, we just couldn't find we it. We could never yeah. find it. Yeah. yeah. Who knows where it's at? So, speaking of gear, um, if someone's getting new into this and they just bought a 200 series Land Cruiser or 
or they, they bought a 100 series Land Cruiser. Uh, what do you think are the first three component accessories or modifications? What do you see as most important things that people do to their vehicles to be to get them ready for travel? Yeah, I think it's it's going to be specific to the way they typed it, plan to travel and the type of trips they have in mind. But I'd say three that you can never uh, go without or kind of always make sense is, for me, a suspension upgrade. While a stock Toyota does phenomenal, they ride really well, and it's a, a really reliable system, it doesn't really accommodate the loads that we start putting in them aftermarket loads. Because anytime you're talking about travel, particularly long duration or uh, remote travel, you've got a lot of tools, spare parts, food, fuel, water, and those weights come up. And any stock vehicle system from any manufacturer is going to start being compromised when you add that additional weight. So choosing a, a, a good, well-vetted, a, a known good solution, high quality suspension is a big part. It doesn't have to be tall. I'm not even saying a suspension lift necessarily. Sometimes that could just be improved shocks to handle yeah, that additional payload. Really... We're going to spend a lot of time on washboard roads, and yeah. that's where uh, you know things are going to start failing as you overheat stock components, stock shocks particularly. So I'd say suspension's a big one, and maybe that is increasing the height of the vehicle and primarily to accommodate a larger tire. And that's number two for me is choosing a good quality uh, tire, wheel, wheel and tire combo, and something that's going to be good for off-road use, but also the amount of, you know, facing anywhere we go off-roading, we're still doing a lot of pavement to get there. Right. So the right answer isn't always just de facto choosing the most aggressive off-road tire. And in some terrains, even off-road, that's not always the best case scenario. Like sand dunes. Sand dunes, exactly. <laughs> you don't always want the tire that's just going to auger in and dig a hole every time you, you push the gas. So be mindful of where you're going to be traveling and choose an appropriate tire, but a good durable tire. And if that's a, a little bit larger size or a lot larger size, no, no right or wrong answer there. Kind of keep that in mind as you choose the suspension. So those two really play together as, as my top two. I can't think of any vehicle that couldn't probably benefit. Can you go do a trip with a vehicle with stock suspension and the tires it comes from the dealer with? Absolutely. People have driven around the world and that, but as you start to load the vehicle up more, those those can maybe become compromises. And manufacturers don't always include a tire that's even on an off-road vehicle that's necessarily suited for all off-road vehicle use. They're, they're kind of mindful that most owners of a new vehicle are going to be driving them on the road. Yeah. Fuel, the fuel economy. Numbers, fuel economy, right? noise <laughs> is a big issue and handling. So be mindful of those that you, larger tires are going to have an impact on your fuel economy. And that's important. Uh, be mindful of all those as you wrap it all together. And I'd say my number three, I'm going to bounce around between, uh, I'm going to kind of make it a 3.5 or maybe <laughs> call the fourth, but uh, additional fuel capacity. I'm a big fan of auxiliary tanks or having a way to safely and comfortably store fuel. A lot of the trips we do, that's kind of been a big issue in the planning is where you can go based on how much fuel you have. And with a lot of, you know, choose a Land Cruiser 200, for example, it benefits really well from having an auxiliary fuel tank. There are available factory in other markets, not an option here in the U.S., but fortunately there are some good aftermarket options you can have for additional fuel. It doesn't have to be a built-in tank. Maybe it is just some quality uh, fuel tanks that are rack-mounted or bumper-mounted. There are some good solutions there just, just to have that capacity to get out to those places you like to travel. And if you're not going to be traveling super long distances, then I would scale that one back on importance, of course. And then my next one would be just some mindful interior storage mods to safely carry your gear. Mm. We all too often, I think everybody, myself included, certainly when I started, like you, you throw everything in the back of the vehicle. You pop the hatch, you lay the tailgate down, you just stack it to the roof, but you're not mindful of how that gear moves and shifts as you travel, but also uh, in the event
event of an accident or a rollover or even just a panic braking scenario, where does all that stuff go and how accessible is it? You know, like, so just being mindful as you set up the inside of the vehicle, plan that out. Where Where's your winch controller when you need it? Is it mm-hmm. buried in a drawer in the back? Where's your recovery gear? Where's a first aid kit or a fire extinguisher? Just thinking of your, uh, your, in, your interior build out. That doesn't mean go over the top. You don't have to have every gadget, every mount, every, you know, cell phone camera holder all over inside. Sometimes less is more and just be mindful of what you bring. Yeah. Otherwise it can be a real frustration to get to that thing that you use every day. If you don't have that interior layout design properly. Yeah, absolutely. And using good quality cases and lashing it all down properly. That's yeah, that is so key. All right. So what what are some of your, this is something I always like to ask, and it's a totally selfish question because I end up buying these books later, but what's some of your favorite books that you've read in the last, well, whenever? I am a total Utah, as you know, I love traveling in Utah. So been fortunate to travel on a lot of neat adventures around the globe and and see some amazing places that I dear memories and would love to go back. But some of my favorite trips are just a few hours from Salt Lake here. So I love anything Utah related. So when it comes to books, anything Utah history, I love uh, Edward Abbey books, Desert Solitaire about early times down in Southeast Utah. It's inspiring to read. I don't I often keep one in my glove box, just a, a copy. I've read that book cover to cover a dozen times, but still we'll just pick it up and I won't even start from the front. I'll just choose a random chapter to kind of read through. So love that. Uh, but mostly Utah history books. So I, I could definitely give you some examples of my favorites, but my library of them, I'm kind of a, a book nerd and have collected a lot and it depends on where I'm going, but uh, definitely some of the, you know, Moab travel books and Canyonlands guides. I love reading through what it was like to travel through there before it was a national park back mm-hmm. some of the old travel guides. And yeah, so anything Utah history related. Yeah, there's so much here, like one of the most amazing states for overlanding in the country. So one of the other things that I've started to ask in these interviews is how do you think travel, I mean, you've been around the world now a few times. How has travel changed you as a person? Wonderful question. And I think about that a lot, both from a personal standpoint, like personal growth and and my desire to in, in experience other cultures. I've really embraced that. Traveled a, a bit before, got into the kind of vehicle travel, done some family travel and been fortunate to you know, make it down to Central America with my my brothers, my, my parents, but just really embracing the cultures you're in and just living while you're there, eating what they eat, visiting their their restaurants. I mean, we went to a circus in Central America. I mean, just, just do as the locals do and, and really embrace that. Say, bringing that back uh, you know, home is, is just really looking at the cultures of other people around us. Even here in the United States, it's easy to find that there are people that uh, live and experience things differently than ourselves. And you can really learn a lot from, from the way they live. And yeah, don't get too over the top. A lot of people are scared to go to Central America as an example, we keep bouncing on just because it is so close or even Mexico, just over the border. And part of that, I think, is the fear of other cultures, other food. But And that's really what makes travel so fun to me is is that it's not the vehicle gets us there and it's, it's fun to plan your vehicle and build your vehicle to go do a trip to Baja or head up to, to Canada or go do the up to Prudhoe Bay. But really it's meeting people along the way that have been the most memorable moments I have. It's not necessarily like the vehicle or things we did each day in the vehicle. It was the people you meet along the way, the experiences you have, the chicken you have in Nicaragua that you <laughs> want to go back and get again. Yeah. Th- those are the memories to me. And and I, I think about those every day. There's not a day to go by that I don't have like a little flashback of a memory of a trip. And then I, I, there's a business perspective of that too, that I've, when we've traveled a lot of these countries, Expedition 7, included, we had the opportunity to visit different four by four shops. Maybe we were there to get parts or get an oil change done on the vehicle. And it was fascinating to me to see how businesses run in other countries. Australia is obviously a major overlanding market and a four by four market. So they have these 
grand extravagant off-road shops that are just amazing i mean the ability to to go into a a, an arb facility over there and see just how well stocked they are and the number of vehicles that are getting built it's pretty fascinating and and just seeing their system so it's fun i with with the build of the sherpa truck i was able to go spend a a week in australia with a facility they're building that truck at the arb facility and it was just awesome to see just how how they do it differently than we do in the u.s and then the the polarized side of that is we went to a toyota dealership in magadan it was in like a basement of an apartment building it was and they had probably more parts than a lot of dealerships here in the u.s in this thousand square foot basement apartment i mean it was packed wall to wall but they had everything we needed and everything we asked for they could get yeah so it was amazing they were very resourceful so yeah it's been been interesting to see some business perspective from that and some takeaways of kind of how uh, how it operates in different countries oh that's great what a cool story that is for sure so thank you for spending the time how do people find more about you let us know your website to your business here and then how do they find you on social media yeah absolutely so the, the day-to-day is cruiser outfitters we are working we're kind of right in the middle of launching our new e-commerce site and that is cruiser tech that's t-e-q on the end so cruiser t-e-q and that eventually cruiser outfitters will point to that we're just launching the new e-commerce site but it's live and going and, and we've been really happy with the way it's working out and i i'm on uh, facebook as kurt williams i'm on instagram as cruiser kurt so pretty easy to find on both of those if you want to follow along the crazy things we're doing. Our race team is Kangaroo Racing, and we'd love to have you watch us on Facebook or Instagram there. Yeah, follow along. Always always something fun going on. Well, thanks for the time today, Kurt. And man, it has just been an amazing over a decade of knowing you and the places that we've had laughs around the world with with uh, usually at one or the other's expense, <laughs> right. but but uh, just a, I mean that is the thing to take away. Those are the, that are listening is that travel should be a joy. We don't need to take any of this stuff too seriously. You don't need to buy much of anything. You heard it from Kurt. Put a good set of shocks on there, maybe a little bit of a lift and some high quality tires, and then make sure all your stuff is is lashed down in the back and go. And it doesn't mean that modifying vehicles more is wrong. It just means that you don't have to. The goal should be to go see the world, spend less on the equipment than you do on your travels. And we will talk to you next time.